We continue this morning in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically now the Beatitudes. So now, once again, let's hear them read from Matthew chapter 5. You'll have these memorized here shortly. <laughs> Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. There befalls me in my life often what I call a sweet providence. You know, there are frowning providences where the providence of God comes in a dark cloud in a difficult time. The Lord didn't say all things work together for good in vain. There's all sorts of things. But today's a sweet providence. Let me explain what it is. Last week, Mark Davis did not finish his sermon. He was pressed for time with the baptisms and all the other stuff that takes place at 11 and 9.30. And so he said he was going to preach on this beatitude that we just saw, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And he's going to finish it. Part two, more mercy is the title. And I thought, you know, I said everything I know last week. (laughs) I exhausted myself. And then I thought, wait a minute, this is what you've been waiting for, Ron. Every week I have this little ache in my heart that there was something I didn't get a chance to explain very thoroughly. Uh, We just had to move on. You know, we have broad topics usually in sermons. And so there was a time when I just couldn't, as they say, sometimes camp out or drill down. And this gives me a chance to drill down on something. And it's on this concept of mercy. So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. And I'm going to pace it a little slower, hopefully, and we'll go back and look at something serious in Scripture. One of the things that we try to emphasize, or I try to emphasize in my preaching all the time, is that all these wonderful graces that God has for us that are special are in Christ, and they apply only to His children. Uh, it's easy for people to start talking about the, the uh, fatherhood of God. And in a sense, since we're all descended from Adam and Adam was God's son in, insofar as he was a created son, we are children of God. We are all, but not in that specific sense that, that John speaks about it, not at all. We hear a lot about the love of God. God is love and his love is over all of his creation. And that is true. The rain falls on the just. There's common grace and love in God's creation. 
and it's an abundant, it's good. In and of itself, it'd be just wonderful. It wasn't for sin. That would be all that God needed to have ever done was create. And it was good. And if Adam and Eve had left it alone, not listened to the serpent, not rebelled against God, not destroyed the created order and taken the created order into a state of suffering and groaning and waiting for redemption, there would have been no need for any gospel because there couldn't have been any better news than was already extant everywhere. It was all good. But sin, and that's the whole story of the Scriptures, is God's work of redemption. He is redeeming humanity. He is redeeming the creation. He's making all things new. He's restoring. He's buying back. And he, in order to do this, God's justice and holiness must be satisfied in this operation. And so we have the work of Christ. We have the atonement. I've been accused by one of my Baptist brethren, brethren saying, you Presbyterians, all you ever do is preach about sin, sin, sin. I said, well, they don't all do that, but I do. <laughs> we preach about sin, and that's because that's the, that's the point. That is the absolute pivotal point of our condition now as humans. The most important thing that can happen to us is somehow have our sins forgiven, our sins atoned and dealt with, and God's wrath be satisfied, God's holiness be upheld, and God's justice be rendering a perfect verdict. That God's just and the justifier of those that come to. And, and all of this is focused in Christ. I've quoted countless times all those passages in, about love in the gospel talk about love being focused and centered in Christ Jesus. A lot of people are presuming upon the God's attribute of love that he's just going to ignore their sin, completely let them in, give them heaven, and forget all about it. Because he's love. He can't do anything but do that. And that's not the focus of love in the Bible, not salvific love, not saving love. It is a love and mercy and grace, goodness and kindness, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that is focused in Christ. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God commended His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And over and over you see this. And this is true with the mercy of God. The mercy of God has a pinpoint place where it is distributed, where it is efficacious. And that place, that place of mercy, is called in the Old Testament the mercy seat. And let's just sketch a little background if we can. We've got a little time to do that in the, what the mercy seat was all about. Now, I'm going to presume that most of you are believers, and even if you're not believers, most of you, probably all of you, are quite informed about the Bible. So I'm not going to deal with a lot of details, but I am going to sort of set a context. When God told Moses and Aaron to go down and to lead God's people out of Egypt, God gave them a time in the wilderness that he, they would worship Him, but He gave them specific standards. And He told them to build a tabernacle, which is a tent. 
And he told him to build that tabernacle according to certain specifications, certain details. God told Moses, build it the way I told you to build it on the mountain. When Moses was up getting the commandments, he got the, the blueprints and the, and the plans for the tabernacle and its furnishings as well. The reason God wanted it, be, when Solomon came to build the temple, the Lord said, do what's in your heart. That's what he told David and Solomon. Do what's in your heart. Use your imagination. Be creative. Build a temple. And lo and behold, they built a wonderful temple. And it was like so many of the pagan temples because it had so much of, 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 of David and Solomon, especially Solomon's heart in it. But the reason God told him to build the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple, the way I told you to is because the tabernacle and its furnishings are a picture of Christ. And it has to be precise. It doesn't come out of man's imagination. It comes out of God's being, God's very character, God's very nature, God's very being. And so when they build the tabernacle, it had to be something that pictured Christ. And it did. The tabernacle was built. Well, let me just read a couple of texts here to kind of get us started. And in, in Exodus 25 and 26, you'll see some of these uh, specifics. He says, um, and the Lord said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then over here, he says, there I will meet with you. So they're going to build this tabernacle, a place where God is going to meet his people. And that's going to be the tabernacle, the tent. Well, see, that's Christ. And it, it is built like Christ was built, with bones and skin in an incarnation. And that's what the tabernacle was. It was staves and rods and beams and pegs. It was bones. But then it was skin. It had over it goat skin. It had over the top of it to weatherproof it badger skin. And all the interior was hung with lavish curtains and drapes, some made of linen and some made of, of, of yarn, of wool. And they brought all of this in and they get put everything the way it was supposed to be. And it was magnificent. It was azure blue. It was scarlet. It was purple. Can you imagine that thing standing out there in the desert? What it looked like? And it was tall and it was in a big courtyard and, and they built this tabernacle. And some of the specifics, let me just read about it. Uh, it talks about the tabernacle that they were to build and how they were, were to build it. And then he said, put in that tabernacle an ark. And there was a, a number of other furnishings too, which I'm going to skip all over, but y'all know there's altars and tables and candlesticks and, and incense uh, uh, stands and all these other things in it, all of which have significance and point to the person and work of Christ and the Holy Spirit as well in this, uh, in this tabernacle. But the uh, reading on in, in 25, Exodus 25, he says, um, they shall make an art, ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall it be in length, a cubit a half in its breadth. Cubit is somewhere around a yard or a meter, maybe slightly shorter. So we're looking at something, if something is three cubits, it's about about how about eight or nine feet, something like that, and then half that, that length uh, wide. So, and what the ark is, is a box. It's a big box made of wood, and you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it. So you make it a molding of gold around it. And then so you shall cast rings of gold, and then it talks about how it is to be 
fixtured so that it can be sturdy and so it can be transported. And then he moves then to one of the particular uh, features of that ark. So we've got the big tabernacle, and it's, I didn't mention it, but it, most of you know, it was two-thirds of it was, was, a, was the holy place, and then one-third of the interior was the holy place, and it was 10 by 10 by 10. It was cubed. It was 10 um, cubits. It was cubed. By the way, when you get to the book of Revelation, the picture of heaven is it is cubed. It's exactly the same dimension uh, cubed. And, and of course, that is, uh, heaven is nothing but an enlarged holy of holies. It's the place where God dwells. It's the most holy place. And the centerpiece of the ark, uh, of, the, uh, of the holy of holy place is the ark. And the centerpiece of the ark is this slab that's laid over it. So now he's going he's gonna to talk about how this is to be built. He says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. So it's going to be like a, a, a slab, a lid, a heavy solid gold lid over the uh, ark. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. So of a piece without, you know, doing any welding or any hammering and nailing, they're going to have a slab of gold and hammered and beaten and, and formed and sculpted out of that gold. As it comes up, it's going to form two cherubim whose wings will meet at the top. So now we have a, a golden slab. The gold is of one piece all the way up, crafted and molded to where you have this, this picture here of the, of the slab below, pure gold, and these cherubim Two cherubs, one on one side, one on the other, but their wings touch in the top. These are cherubim, by the way, angelic figures. It's, it's quite a magnificent uh, piece of, of art, but it's going to be hidden from the people. It's going to be in the, in the holy of holy place. Make one cherubim at one end and one on the other end. Of one piece, the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another forward, the mercy seat shall be the faces of the cherubim. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. And by the way, what they put in there, the testimony was the Ten Commandments, the tables of stone that God had given which is God's law, God's character, the transcript of who he is and what he's like and what he expects us to be. Basically, if you summarize it, it says, I am holy, therefore you be holy. That's what's inside the ark. Also in there was Aaron's rod that budded. It was an almond rod, and it was the, it was the rod of God's miracles. It was the rod of God's power. It was the rod of God's leadership. It was the rods of God's authority. He had that in there. And then they also put in a container, when the time came, a container of manna, the bread of life. All, of course, foreshadowing and picturing Christ. And those were the items in the ark. <clears throat> I didn't mean to mention that because that takes up time, but I can't help myself. It says, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. Those are those three items. There I will meet with you. So here we have the picture of what God has constructed. 
and told them to construct. And by the way, the first part of that chapter talks about how the people brought tons of jewelry and gold and silver and valuable things to be melted down and to used in the construction of the ark. The, the sockets in the tent were made of silver, a talent of silver each, and et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to get too involved, but it, it was a magnificent uh, structure. It, it's spelled out more here in, in, uh, in the next chapter in the book of Exodus. So we have this marvelous place with this very sacred holy of holies with this ark in it that has very significant things in it. And then over it is this slab of gold with the cherubim, and that's called the mercy seat. Why this epicentristic piece of worship aid is because this was going to be the center place. This is going to be considered God's throne. It was the Ark of the Covenant was considered the very epicenter of the presence and the power of God. And it was going to be where God was going to demonstrate his most important work because there was a ritual that occurred once a year and it was called the Great Day of Atonement. And this mercy seat literally is called the place of covering. It's, it's the word kaphoreth, or we get our word uh, kipper, yom kipper. The day of atonement is the day that's, that is specified here. And on the great day of atonement, which is described, and let me pull it out here so I can get a, a good uh, glance at it, is a 16th chapter of Leviticus. The whole chapter describes the, the, um, the day of atonement. And on the day of atonement, this is what would happen in brief. The high priest would, first of all, make an offering for himself. He would slaughter a bullock, a bull, and, and bring the blood to the altar. Then he would take two goats, two live goats, and one goat would be sacrificed, and the blood was going to be placed upon this mercy seat. Why in the world they want to splatter nasty blood on gold I don't know. But I also don't know why they let the blood of the Son of God splatter all over Himself, the rugged cross and the sand below. But the Lord had said over and over, and some people can't take this, and it is kind of barbaric in some ways, but without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and to give the blood is to give the life. And there is no remission. That's the way God set it up from the very beginning. God slaughtered animals himself in the garden to make atonement, a covering, a kafar, a Yom Kippur for Adam himself. And that's the way God operates his redemption. It's through the shedding of blood. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And that's what God is going to picture way back there in this primitive, semi-savage ancient culture. He's going to show them the importance of the blood sacrifice and where it's placed. And then the two goats, one is set aside for sacrifice, but the other, the sins of the people. And that's the whole point of the Day of Atonement. It's to bring the people together in a great convocation, a great assembly, and symbolically and ritualistically to show that their sins have been laid upon another and so the priest will put his hands on this other goat and send him out into the wilderness 
scapegoat. He'll take the blood of the goat that is slain and take it into the Holy of Holies, past the veil, into the privacy where no one goes ever, no one sees ever. It's the presence of the inscrutable God and the transcendent God who's made himself real in that little spot. And the priest, the high priest, goes in with the basin with the blood and just splashes that blood all over that mercy seat. That beautiful gold, beautiful, valuable, splashes blood on him. Symbol of the most precious thing on earth being blood splattered. So the high priest goes in. Now, you theologians, you like big words, propitiation and expiation. These two goats represent those works of God on behalf of us due to our sin. One is propitiation. Propitiation means the removal of wrath, the appeasement, the satisfaction of an open case, the, the judging of a, of a court. There's a sense in which we stand condemned the guilty verdict has already been put forth in our life. He that believeth in the Son is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. The Bible says we don't wait to the judgment to see whether or not we are condemned. We are all condemned due to our own personal sin. And if that's not enough, we got it from our Father who got it from His Father who got it from His Father who got it from Adam. We are twice sinners, sinners by birth and sinners by life. In our own living, we're sinful. God's got to deal with that sin. That's the most important thing. You may think a lot of other things are more important, but that's why we come to church, to learn God's viewpoint on human existence. And that is sin has to be dealt with. And so this, this um, atonement is made. Propitiation is made in the sacrifice of the blood of the slain uh, goat. But then expiation. Ex means to pull out of and to send away. To expiate our sins means to send them out into the wilderness, to lay them upon someone else and send them away. And that's what Christ did. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so propitiation and expiation are enacted in this, in this beautiful ceremony. Now, what does the New Testament say about this? Well, let's briefly look at a couple of passages and then we'll be done. Um, Let's take Hebrews. And by the way, you know the whole thing about every bit of this is summed up in one sentence in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, talking about all these rituals that the high priest did. Uh, and he says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That's all the tabernacle and the ritual system and all that Old Testament stuff that you get bogged down in when you read Exodus and Leviticus and, and, and somewhat Deuteronomy. Then you hear all about its enactment throughout uh, sacred history and the life of Israel. And all of that stuff was going on full blast when Jesus came to earth. There was a temple, there was a priesthood, there were sacrifices slain. All of that stuff was still going on after all these many, many generations. But all those things were just the copy. They were the, the, the ritualistic symbol. And it's interesting there were shadow. 
You know, shadow, you can see a shadow, the shadow can, but you can't discern a lot about it. There's murkiness in a shadow. There's darkness in a shadow. There's mystery in a shadow. There's emptiness in a shadow. But all that has been fulfilled in Christ. And that's what chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews is. And you can read there, but he talks about, but only the high priest goes in. He's talking about the great day of atonement. But once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. In other words, it was offered not because of every little sin they'd committed. There were trespass offerings for that. And there's a whole other part of the sacrificial system. This was for the sins of the people as a whole. This was a symbol of this for that. A goat for a congregation, for a people. And that's what, that's what is being done in this sacrifice. It was the word that's used to describe the mercy seat in translation is the Greek word helasterion. And what it means is an appeasement, to placate wrath. It means a covering and a removal. It's, a, it's both propitiation and expiation. And so that's the propitiatory work of Christ is what is, is symbolized. And that's what Christ did on the cross. In fact, the picture in the book of Hebrews is that Christ offered as the high priest, he went in not needing to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. But he went in as the sinless son of God, as fully qualified to be our high priest in that he was fully man and fully God. He was a priest after the highest order, the order of Melchizedek, and he makes a sacrifice. But the blood of the sacrifice is his own life, his own blood that is splashed upon the mercy seat. So where God looks to save people is at that mercy seat. And the Bible says Christ died once for all. High priest did it once a year, but now it's once for all. It's taken care of. That's what's so abominable about the Catholic Mass is it is a continual offering of the sacrifice in cryptic terms perhaps, but still it is a Christ is offered and sacrificed for us. But the right term is Christ has been, has been offered for us. And Christ came in and did the work and it was finished. It was though he entered into the true heavenly place with his own blood and gave it to the true tabernacle, which is the, the holy of holies in heaven where the Father dwells upon his throne, where everything is overlaid with gold. And there he offered the blood of his sacrifice. Highly uh, uh, spiritual in many ways, highly symbolic, but nevertheless teaching a real good truth. Now the demonstration of this, and I close with this because the reason I close is I'm out of time. That's the only reason I ever close. I had a guy listen to my tapes one time. He said, Ron, you sure do bring it in for your landing sometimes pretty fast. I said, well, that's because I'm out of time. But let me just point out one little thing that was kind of interesting to me a few years ago when I, when I saw it in the scriptures. The Gospel of John describes uh, the people approaching the, the, the empty tomb that we talked about a few weeks ago at Easter. And the very scene of the empty tomb itself told us a lot about the resurrection, how that the stone had been rolled away, uh, the condition of the grave clothes when Peter went in and saw where the Lord had. And then there was another thing that was kind of demonstrative of, 
of what was happening. In fact, no wonder the book of John says they saw the empty tomb and the circumstance and everything that was there in that, in that early morning time at the, at, as the people arrived at the empty tomb. They saw and they believed. And listen to what the scripture says here. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now, Peter was already in there looking at the grave clothes. Verse 12, and Mary saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been laying, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, here's the grave. It's a slab. It's a stone slab. It's a grave that's never been used. It's pure. It's uncontaminated, undefiled. And the body of Jesus was laid there in that shroud soaking in blood. And his body was laid there. When he was raised from the dead, he left and the, the shroud and all the bloody mess stayed right there on that slab. And sitting on that slab was an angel on one side and an angel on the other side making a picture, just a brief picture, of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Christ is the mercy seat. Come to the mercy seat. And thou shalt have mercy.